acute kidney injury. So we know that the kidney insufficiency is an abrupt sustained loss of the kidney's ability to secrete water, regulate electrolyte balance, regulate acid-base balance, and eliminate waste products. You can have renal insufficiency through acute kidney failure or acute kidney injury, which is predominantly a renal vasoconstriction, or through chronic kidney disease, which can be from an actual structural issue with the parenchyma of the kidney. And this is determined through biopsy imaging, blood or urine samples. And we'll also note that there's a decreased GFR, glomerular filtration rate. The epidemiology and etiology of acute kidney injury is about 0.8 per 100,000 hospitalized pediatric patients. And we see it more prevalent in older kids with about 4 per 100,000. It can be classified, like I mentioned earlier with your fractional excretion of sodium, as either pre-renal, intrinsic, or post-renal. Your pre-renal conditions are your hypovolemia or sepsis. Your intrinsic renal are quite a few, but a few listed here are hemolytic uremic syndrome, glomerulonephritis, and tumor lysis syndrome. And your post-renal can be anything that obstructs the flow of urine from the kidney. Some key points to note is that it's definitely very under, underreported for both AKI and CKD. We know that um, acute kidney injury is a complex multifactorial process that can affect both morbidity and mortality. However, kids can retain their kidney function once the illness is, is uh, subsided. Whereas in chronic kidney disease, it's more of a chronic problem. And these kids have chronic conditions such as anemia, malnutrition, hormone dysregulation, immunological dysfunction, along with a lower quality of life, higher anxiety levels, maladaptive disorders. Overall, with acute kidney injury, there's a vasal, <clears throat> a renal vasoconstriction as the major cause of the problem. There's an insult to the tubular epithelium, which causes a release of vasoactive agents, such as angiotensin II, endothelium, nitric oxide, adenosine, and such. For a clinical definition, we look at the lab work. So you have an increase in serum creatinine that's more than uh, 0.3 milligrams per deciliter within 24 hours, or if it's more than one and a half times baseline within the first week. Or you can look at the urine volume if it's less than 0.5 cc's per kilo per hour for six hours. Can all be inclusion criteria for acute kidney injury. Another criteria method that we use is the P-rifle. And here we look at risk, injury, failure, loss, and end-stage renal disease. Again, here's the criteria for, for all of those. Can, once we make our diagnosis, we look for some clinical features. And features such as hyperkalemia, hypocalcemia, hyperphosphatemia. These patients have volume overloaded. They can be edematous. They can be um, increased in their body weight. Um, they can be acidotic. These are all things that we look for. And when we look at our diagnostic values, we're looking to see if they have normal electrolytes versus abnormal. Is their urine uh, and microscopic values within normal range or do they have elevated proteins? Have they gained a lot of weight recently over the last couple of days? Um, with renal ultrasound, we can look at um, structures of the kidney as well as renal blood flow to help determine if there's a renal um, insufficiency. For pre-renal, the differential diagnoses include dehydration, hypovolemia, um, and abdominal compartment syndrome. For our intrinsic renal disease, the list gets a little bit longer. 
with issues such as tumor lysis syndrome, hemolytic uremic syndrome, uh, distributive shock that's been going on ongoing for some time, cardiogenic shock, um, uh, nephrotoxic me medications. For the prosrenal disease, again, you look at things that would cause obstruction, say, at the posterior urethral valves um, or the uh, urethral vesicle junction obstruction, uh, children with aortic Barrett disease or prune belly syndrome are all issues that you would look at for prosrenal. Um, another um, concern or another differentials that you could look at are um, tumors such as Wilms tumors, or uh, or neuroblastoma, um, uh, nephrolithiasis, or kidney stones. Treatment for prerenal disease, of course, you would treat the hypovolemia or dehydration, and that should help treat your, your renal dysfunction. And you give them isotonic solutions, your crystalloids, your colloids. And if they have a compartment syndrome, you can tap the abdomen. For your intrinsic disease, you want to look for um, and to treat acute tubular necrosis or your glomerular nephritis. You want to restore blood pressure, prevent severe fluid overload, avoid nephrotoxic medications. And for your glomerular nephritis, you may have to give medications such as your steroids or some of your other drugs that are going to help um, uh, reduce the inflammation um, within the kidney. For hemolytic uremic syndrome, it's supportive care. Um, uh, for hemolytic uremic syndrome, it's a specified form of E. coli, which is the problem. I think it's 0157 is the type of E. coli that you have to worry about. Uh, for rhabdomyolysis, you're going to give fluid hydration, which is about two to three times maintenance fluid. Again, you can alkalinize the urine with sodium bicarb to help protect the kidneys. For tumor lysis syndrome, we're going to hydrate them two to three times maintenance, alkalinize, alkalinize the urine with sodium bicarb, and we can pro, uh, prescribe uh, oral phosphate binders and also urate oxidase uh, medications. And then, you know, in, in severe cases, we may need to do renal replacement therapy. Some of the drugs that we know that are nephrotoxic in nature are your aminoglycosides, your non-steroidal inflammatory medications such as ibuprofen or naproxen, antifungal agents, amphotericin B being one of them, chemotherapy agents, ACE inhibitors, angiotensin, your ARBs or your angiotensin II receptor blockers, or your calcioneuron inhibitors such as tacrolimus or cyclosporin. So knowing that these medications are nephrotoxic in nature, we need to make sure that we plan if a patient develops acute kidney injury or has renal insufficiency that we either dose adjust these medications or try to avoid them. When we're doing our workups, our biomarkers, we want to definitely look obviously at the creatinine as well as the BUN, the cysteine C. Um, we can also now look at the NGAL, which is one lab that's being utilized more and more to assess for uh, renal function as well as your kidney injury molecule and your interleukin-18. Prevention includes maintenance of blood flow, so your cardiac output, keeping them euvolemic, avoid toxins or toxic medications. Lasix can cause, um, can be used early in acute injury, acute kidney injury. Often, sometimes we'll switch over to mannitol, um, which may work by increasing flow through the tubules, preventing obstruction. It's an osmotic diuretic by nature, so it decreases endothelial swelling, um, decreases blood viscosity, increases renal perfusion. Points would be to treat life-threatening issues first, hyperkalemia, hypocalcemia with tetany or fluid volume overload.
with pulmonary edema. You also want to prevent any worsening electrolyte imbalances. So maintain good nutrition, administer blood products, and provide supported medication therapy. Now let's take a look at end-stage renal disease. The incidence is about 1.5 per 100,000. It's increased 32% since 1990, predominantly seen more so in males than females. And the racial distribution, we see 64% in uh, Caucasians, 19% in African-Americans, and 14% Hispanics. We do see end-stage renal disease from two different components, either from a congenital urological abnormalities or from a glomerular disease aspect. So your obstruction, uh, uropathies, polycystic kidney disease would be your congenital or your urological anomalies, whereas your glomerular disease would be the, that of focal segmental glomerular sclerosis. You can also have a systemic immunological disease um, such as lupus or hemolytic uremic syndrome. Your presentation, you would see hematuria, hypertension, edema. Some patients will be asymptomatic. Often you'll see growth failure in these patients, smaller than your average child. Some of your clinical markers, there's quite a few here. So from your laboratory testing, your BUN creatinine, they would have a low albumin level, serum sodium abnormalities, as well as potassium abnormalities, um, they could have serum phosphate elevation, metabolic acidosis, proteinuria, and hematuria. On ultrasound, they could have echogenic kidneys. They could have small kidneys as well. They can have uh, absent kidneys, hydronephrosis, urinary obstruction, renal artery stenosis, as well as among other things. Your differential diagnosis will include, again, quite a long list, including acute dehydration, acute tubular necrosis, uh, hemolytic uremic syndrome, obstructive uropathies, intrinsic renal disease, so on and so forth. The plan would be to restore fluid volume, correct your hyponatremia, correct your hyperkalemia, and stabilize the cardiac membrane. So here I want to pause for a minute, and this to me is one of the most life-threatening things you could see in, um, in the acute care setting where someone has a hyperkalemia. Um, first thing you'll note as on your EKG strip, you'll see an elevation in the T-wave or tall peak T-waves. If you know that a patient has received too much potassium, or if you have someone who is in end-stage renal disease and got potassium supplementation, you're going to see those EKG changes. And the first thing you should do, and I've listed them out in order for you here on the slide, is give calcium chloride. And calcium chloride is going to stabilize your cardiac membrane and stabilize the cardiac cells and prevent the cardiac standstill that could occur from the hyperkalemia. Your next quick intervention that you could do is give insulin and dextrose. The insulin is going to help drive the potassium back into the intracellular space. The dextrose is to counterbalance the insulin that was just given so you don't have a hypoglycemia. Interestingly enough now, albuterol um, is a medication that we can aerosolize and give to the patient, and it'll help also, again, regulate insulin and, and dextrose to help drive the potassium back into the cell. It used to be thought that sodium bicarb was a way to change or alter the pH intravascularly, um, but we found often enough that the acidosis that occurs um, sometimes with these patients is still an intracellular acidosis, so sodium bicarb can be given, but it's not going to be a quick fix. Sometimes it could take a while for that bicarb to actually make the adjust, adjustment to change the pH to actually drive the potassium back into the cell. 
sodium poly, polystyrene or K-exalate. Um, you can give that, again, not a quick fix. And this is where it'll bind to the potassium and allow them to excrete it. And then, of course, you can do emergent dialysis. But emergent dialysis, again, is not always a quick fix. And again, you'd have to get catheters uh, put in place. Um, so there's a lot that occurs um, prior to that. So again, if you had someone that had uh, an emergent hyperkalemia that needed to be treated immediately, first thing you would do is give calcium chloride. Then you would follow that with insulin and dextrose. You can start albuterol. <clears throat> you can give sodium bicarb. Um, you can give K-exalate and Lasix. But again, those things all take a while. And if you have someone that's an end-stage renal disease, Lasix might not even work, which is why I didn't even add this to the list. Um, one word of caution, if the patient is not peed, do not put potassium in their fluids. And if they're in end-stage renal disease, you want to be very, um, uh, you don't want to give potassium hardly at all. And again, you want to correct their acidosis. You also want to maximize and optimize their protein intake. So if you give someone protein who is in end-stage renal disease, you can elevate their BUNs, which can affect their renal function. So often these patients will be consulted with a dietitian or nutritionist to see where or how much protein we should be giving them in their diet. You want to manage their hypertension, correct their anemia. You want to optimize and maximize their growth potential. They may need growth hormone. Oftentimes these patients need additional hormone replacements such as your calcitriol, vitamin D supplements. Again, your consults for these patients will include nephrology, nutrition, um, and adjunctive renal support. Some of these patients might require, you know, dialysis or peritoneal dialysis, and we'll talk about that in the next lecture. For your discharge planning, you want to make sure you have careful and routine blood pressure measuring opportunities for these patients. Many of them are hypertensive. You want to have a measure of their serum creatinine before they are discharged or have a way for them to have that measured as an outpatient. You want to give your caregiver instructions for early signs of kidney disease, or you may send them home for um, on fluid restrictions and they may need to have daily weights recorded um, as well as medication administration infection control, and if they're started on dialysis, they need to understand the dialysis plan before discharge.